All right, so we'll go three, two, one. Hello. Okay. Oh, on the on the okay. Got it. Three, two, one. Hello. Hello. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is like the for sorry, two musicians cannot come in on cue. <laughs> Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is Modern Drummer Magazine Hall of Fame nominee and nine-time Reader's Poll winner, Todd Zuckerman. As well as being in the 70s supergroup Sticks and touring with Beach Boys legend Brian Wilson, Todd took the most dangerous gig in rock music, playing drums with Spinal Tap. We're going to talk to Todd about his experiences with David, Nigel, and Derek, how he avoided spontaneously combusting, and why the secret to longevity in the music business is knowing that line between clever and stupid. So without further ado, let's go to the TMEP show. It really puts a perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not you know? too much. There's too much yeah, perspective now. Alex, since this is the very first episode of Too Much Effing Perspective, I think it behooves us to tell our audience of several. Why a podcast about Spinal Tap? Good question, Alan. I think it comes down to the Spinal Tap moment. Those absurd, humbling situations where nothing goes as planned. That is understood by anybody who's been in a band, anybody who's been a touring musician. Spinal Tap moments are a real thing. Uh, we've all experienced them. So our goal here is to seek out those stories and uh, share them with the world. You know, Harry Shearer, who plays Derek Smalls in Spinal Tap, or Derek Smalls, who plays Harry Shearer in real life, um, <laughs> You know, he said that he's actually really proud of that. The Spinal Tap moment is part of the vernacular. You know, you could say the 10cc moment, but no one would know what you're talking about. But the Spinal Tap moment, everyone in music identifies with it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in fact, when I first started working with Radiohead and they flew into New York, I met them there and we got on the tour bus and we're driving up to Boston for the first gig. And I called everybody into the front of the bus for the first band meeting. I said, look guys, I only have a few rules for the tour, but probably the most important is do not quote Spinal Tap. Otherwise your tour will uh, turn into it. And you know, Radiohead being serious guys and real thoughtful, they kind of nodded their heads gravely and said, yeah, yeah, that sounds like good advice. That's true. You, know, you, you don't want it to turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah, well, believe it or not, Radiohead's very first US gig was at a club called Venus de Milo. Not to be confused with intravenous de Milo, but close enough for Spinal Tap purposes. That is meta. You guys were a heavy meta band there. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, it's so sure. funny because I have a meta, meta story about Spinal Tap. My band, the Falling Willendos, were playing a club in Milwaukee called Shank Hall, which was named after the Milwaukee club in the movie. And for that gig, I had purchased platform shoes. And they'd been consigned by a former member of, of Grand Funk Railroad. Isn't that true? <laughs> American band, right? That's yeah. right. And so I'm wearing these things, you know, and I'm not used to wearing stilts on stage, even though 
that will end is our named after a circus act. And <laughs> I got through the whole gig without injuring myself. But the final song, my bassist decides to go out into the audience and he leaps over the PA system onto the floor, which is probably 11 feet down below. So I followed him like a lemming and those brand new shoes hit a Lucite dance floor and my legs just slipped over my head. And I'm laying on the dance floor thinking I must be paralyzed. And I just kept playing the song, which was fortunately an E and that's the chord I was born to play. And I get up and I'm fine. And I finished the gig and I think, whoa, I was really lucky there. Well, I wasn't as lucky as I thought because the next day my neck swelled out be on my head and I had to go to the doctor and I found out I'd suffered spinal damage. So again, talk about meta, a spinal tap moment that actually resulted in spinal damage. Wow. Wait a minute. I'm not one to let the facts get in the way of a good story, but my memory of Shank Hall is you said the, the drop was about 11 feet. I remember being about 11 inches, right? So, you know, stone I mean, just it was extra, a stone, the, edge. stone edge, that extra yeah. tick mark on the napkin can really throw It was supposed off. to be 11 feet, but it ended up, it ended up being 11 inches. <laughs> anyway, decidedly too much having perspective. Let's get to Todd. But first, we'll take a short break. Ready to find out what it's like to party at Princess Diana's estate? Where the pigs make the best rock critics? And the one thing Spinal Tap lead guitarist Nigel Tufnell is still searching for? Let's go to our conversation with Sticks drummer Todd Zuckerman. You know, I just got the, uh, the Dougal Butler book. Oh, it's the best. It's the best rock and roll debauchery book ever. And it's all true. Who's Dougal Butler? D Dougal Butler was Keith Moon's personal assistant from ah. 1966 to 1977. He lived with him, toured with him, and it was his job to get him where he needed to be, wherever that was, on time and somewhat able to do whatever he's supposed to do there. Job that was incredibly difficult indeed, as you can imagine. And, you know, spoiler alert, there's a sad ending. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is that got the Steve McQueen story in there? It is in there. Yeah, Steve McQueen was Keith Moon's next door neighbor, uh, Trancus Canyon, a little north of Malibu. And McQueen just hated him. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, I think he, well, he would also have a telescope and he tried to catch Allie McGraw nude sunbathing. And uh, there's some reports about him just sort of walking in when McQueen was having a party and just being drunk and disorderly and disruptive and whatnot. I mean, we're here to talk about this as Spinal Tap, but that sounds like a scene out of the movie 10. Yeah, I mean, it seemed it was pretty much that way. I mean, I was very sad for a while that book was out of print. Here in America, it's called uh, Full Moon. And um, here in America, like, <laughs> I don't know why I need to say that. It had a different title in, in England. Here, here in America. And you know, Todd, uh, you're in Texas, so you're not really not in America. <laughs> not much longer anyway. By the way, Texas is totally capable of messing with itself. So in case you were wondering. Right. But it's the best uh, rock and roll debauchery book, and it's written with the sort of a, a cockney slang. So there is actually a glossary in the back for when you don't know what the hell he's talking about or what, what this this rhyming stuff is, you can go into the, uh, the back and, uh, and, and kind of get a whole new vocabulary. The only book with subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So anyways, Todd, so happy to have you here. Thank you. That's uh, the Todd, welcome. That, that, that's yeah, the welcome. That's the welcome. Todd and I have been friends for decades. And um, we were in the Falling Willendis together from 94 to 98, would you say? Or is 97? Or 93, I, maybe. I, I would say 93 to 97, sort of. Yeah. and 96 was questionable. but anyway so we're going to start our little talk with what you think of when you think of the movie spinal tap look i'm incredibly close to it having worked with the guys a couple times but the thing that sort of amazes me is the first week i was at berkeley college of music there was like a friday night showing of spinal tap in the berkeley performance center so there's you know like two thousand people in there and to think that i would be you know, in the future, working with those guys was incredible because that, that movie was already legendary by 1987. Clearly, it came out in, I think, what, 82? Actually, it was 1984. I, I don't know what my favorite bit would be, but my here's my favorite bit that no one ever talks about. It's a line no one ever recites at all because everyone's too busy ha-haing at the, oh, they can't find the stage and hello, Cleveland. But when they stop and they ask the janitor, you know how, how to get to the stage he's explaining so you, but you got to go to and you got to you, you got to jog left and harry Shear goes we don't have time for a jog <laughs> but it's it's sort of lost in the hysteria and people are laughing because they can't find the stage and but we don't have time for a jog and that's just something that just deeply tickles me every, every time and even some ardent spinal tap fans have missed that line because they're too busy laughing at all the things surrounding it well, first off, you elitist snob. He was a maintenance engineer, not a janitor. <laughs> and, and second, you want to hear an interesting fact about that? That actor's real name was the late Wonderful Smith, and he was close personal friends with Hattie McDaniel, the Oscar-winning actress from Gone with the Wind. So bear with me as I weave this into a spinal tapestry. Wonderful became the cosmic conduit, the lukewarm water, so to speak, between Gone with the Wind and Break Like the Wind. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene too, Todd. The thing that's stuck out for me is as they're moving around, one of them says, you know, where's Ian? He should be here. And as a as a tour manager, that was like, oh yeah, where's Alex? He should be here. There's not the right beer in the dressing room. There's not the right peppers on the pizza. So I've heard that call myself. And there are some venues where you're like, who designed this? MC Escher? You know, why is this a rat maze to, to get to the stage? I mean, that's why all the all the roadies have mag lights, right? Because to your point, Todd, it's sort of like the risk of physical injury, whether you're uh, going to drop out a door or, or fall off the edge of the stage. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hazardous. There's, a, there's an unwritten rule. Like if it's pitch black, don't take a step. Right. You could fall 10, 15 feet. If you're not careful, yeah. if you don't know where you're going or the, the surroundings are uh, unfamiliar to you, if it's pitch black, don't move. I remember being in Houston with Radiohead and, and at the end of the set, the band went one way off the stage and Johnny Greenwood went the other way. He went the dark way and he actually did go off the side. Fortunately, <laughs> it wasn't too far of a drop. And he was young. He was only 20, so he was resilient. We have glow tape all over our stage with sticks because we have ramps and stairs and stuff like that. And, you know, guys well into their 60s now running around with guitars and all of a sudden if the lights go out or all of a sudden it's a little dark, it, it, it could be a wipeout. 
So glow, glow tape is a very essential thing to have for touring rock bands at any level, even if you're a young band in the club level, invest in some rolls of glow tape because it, uh, it, it could save your life. Todd, you mentioned working with Spinal Tap. Can you tell us something about that? Well, the first time I got a call from C.J. Vanston, who is their musical director, and C.J. does all the music for Chris Guest's movies, and he's been on thousand records from Joe Cocker to Toto to, you know, he's the only musician on Richard Marx's Right Here Waiting for You that's not Richard Marx singing. So he was from Lansing, Michigan, was successful in the Chicago scene, moved to L.A. in maybe 1989, 90, something like that, and then he exploded. So he was their musical director. And when I came up in the studio scene in Chicago, I was friends with a lot of his friends. So I met him when I played in California. When I moved out there, I did my very first session with CJ. And Greg Ladanyi, by the way, who died falling off his stage. Oh, my. <laughs> so, yeah, CJ called me. It was, it was Greg Bissonette's gig, a well-known session drummer in Los Angeles for many years. And Greg couldn't do this date. And he said, hey, can you do The Tonight Show? in two weeks. And it just so happened that I was home for two days. I had to be flying out that night, but the answer was yes, I could do it. So we were playing Stonehenge. Got together, you know, rehearsal. Those guys were very, very mellow, but very, very funny. They sort of laugh like this. <laughs> you know, so I'm hearing the funniest stuff in the world and I'm, you know, like, you know, Chris Gus just kind of rolls back his head and just kind of smiles for a second and that's it. And I'm on the floor. So it's a firing squad of comedy, but very calmly delivered. All lovely human beings, and they all want to play their instruments well. You know, you'd think they're all, you know, very famous and wealthy uh, actors, comedians, writers, movie stars, whatever. But when they have their instruments in their hand, they really want to play well. So it's kind of fun to see that they weren't just, ah, whatever, I'm, uh, it's this. They wanted to play their best. And it wasn't until the, the show day that I, I realized that they were going to have a couple uh, little people in the 18-inch monument and the whole deal for Stonehenge. We, we were in the dressing room and my then fiance Taylor, was with me in the green room. And I didn't know. I'm pretty sure it was Vern Troyer who was one of the uh, huh. little people. Really? And I mean, he was, he was like two feet Mini tall. Me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he was tiny. And he walked by in a suit and Taylor went, oh, baby. Oh, no. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Oh, uh, boy. Oh. So that's, that's how that started. But the thing that really cracked me up is when, when it was, you know, okay, you know, five minutes, go take your places on stage. We go down. And, you know, to, to, to me, you know, it was the, the three were the three guys, you know, Harry, Chris, and, and Michael. But when they have their outfits on, you're like, holy smokes, it's them. It's Spinal Tap. There they are. So we go down, and there's a piece of paper on my snare drum printed that says set list number one, Stonehenge. <laughs> and that's it. And I was just dying laughing. And I, thank God I had the wherewithal to kind of take that piece of paper, fold it, and put it in my stick bag because, you know, my, that's, that's going home with me. So that, that's been in a frame uh, in my office ever since that day, which would have been 20 years ago. That was October of 2000. Did you ever have a Spinal Tap moment with Spinal Tap? Not really, other than when we were in the green room at the Daily Show 
Chris had ordered some deli sandwich, like a corned beef sandwich, and his bread was really small and there was just tons <laughs> of meat. And he opened it up and he said, just like Nigel, but in, in his regular American accent, would you look at this? And he, the way he looked at me, he didn't even have to say it. I knew. It's like, damn it, all these years later, he just wants large-sized bread. The bread oh was too goodness. small for that sandwich, clearly. So do you know what that moment was taken from? It's all based on Van Halen's aversion to brown M&Ms. In their rider, it says no brown M&Ms. That's kind of what but, that... But you know that they don't have an aversion to it. The, the bands would just do bullshit like that just to make sure that the promoters are reading the rider. I mean, bands of, you know, I want a monkey skull and, you know, <laughs> half a pack of Lucky Strikes from the Vietnam era, whatever, you know, nonsense <laughs> that they, they come up with. They want to make sure that the, the promoters are, are reading the rider. And, you know, like, yeah, there are some people that are, whatever, have peanut allergies or gluten-free or whatever their thing is. But, yeah, there's a lot of nonsense with that. Yeah. You know what, Todd, it's, it's cool to hear about the Spinal Tap guys gaining the character the way you described it, right? And um, having a set list, a one-song set list, is kind of like, this is a show. We're doing a real gig. Well, that's yeah. part of why the, the, the movie works is because the music works, right? I mean, if like I've seen so many stand-up comedy movies that don't work because the jokes aren't funny. And although it is kind of goofy, the lyrics, you know, sex farm woman and, and plowing your bean fields, the songs are great. Well, it, they nailed all the eras. I did get to play Give Me Some Money with them on the, the end of the Daily Show. But right. even that, they tap into, no pun intended, they tap into <laughs> that sort of the nomenclature of like a 1965, you know, like like the kinks, you know, you know what I'm doing. <laughs> and da, 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 you know, a little bit of that na 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 thing. They nail that, and then listen to the flower people. That whole thing is genius. If you've ever heard the whole song, especially not just the thirty seconds that's in the movie, but if you listen to that whole thing, there's other sections that is just it's it's a, a, a beautiful homage to that sort of psychedelic, self-important. Thing. You know, it's just like a Mozart symphony and there's gun, dun, 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 section right there. It's just really clever. It's really funny and it makes you smile. That, so, yeah, it's friggin' good. And the medieval stuff, because that's a funny genre that Led Zeppelin gets into and obviously Jethro Tull, like the Black Death era stuff. But they <laughs> nail that, too. What was there? What's the album where they're in the church? Which one is that? Oh, the Gospel According to Spinal Tap. Yeah, <laughs> that is awesome. Speaking of medieval, you've got a good story about the royal family, right, Todd? Well, uh, <laughs> um, so right when I moved to Los Angeles, oh, I just want to set the scene here. I, I moved to Los Angeles sort of unceremoniously. I leave Chicago right after my second Sticks tour. So I've got a house in Chicago and now I'm renting a house in the Hollywood Hills and I'm not making any money and not like I'm working at Walmart making any money. I'm literally making no money and have two houses. So a couple things started to come in and I got a call from Wade Hubbard, who I worked with in Chicago. And he said, hey, would you want to do two songs with David Hasselhoff in <laughs> England for the Princess Diana Memorial? She was such a Hasselhoff head. Dear friends. And I said, Psh 
Sure. Okay. So uh, here's the two songs. Had one rehearsal. And then we were going to fly over to England, played with the BBC Orchestra, because all the acts that were on the bill were playing with the BBC Orchestra. And it's at the Althorpe Palace, which is like, that's where... This is the Spencer family home. That's where Princess Diana grew up. It looks like the Chicago Museum of Natural History. It was amazing. amazing. You know, she was not a commoner. And so there's a reception. The first thing we do, we go in there and David drops a glass. That's probably a 300-year-old <laughs> crystal. So it's immediately, you know, we're the American bulls in the China shop. Was he in his swimsuit at the time and did he have shoes on? No, no, he, he was not. He was, he was dressed appropriately. But there's Diana's mother with a tray of sushi, and she comes over and like, would you like some sushi? And Scott goes, only if you're serving it up. Oh, <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh dear, awesome. oh dear. And, and thankfully, she kind of, you know, giggled a bit. But I thought, boy, it's pretty clear the Americans just walked in the building here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, tell. Okay, so you're playing with David Hasselhoff. You got to talk about that a little bit. I mean, that's that's uh, David Hasselhoff probably watches Spinal Tap and goes, that band's really got their shit together. <laughs> Look, my my experience of that weekend was it was a ton of fun. It was a great experience. Like great hotels, was wined and dined, met a bunch of cool people, and the party at the palace was that was it, it was spectacular. And by the way, I have to tie this into sticks. Because just a few months before that, in the 1997 Sticks tour, when we played Montreal and Quebec City, there was this guy, Gowan, that was opening these two shows. And I remember I got to the venue early, and it was just solo piano. And the entire sold-out arena knew every song was singing along with this guy. And I'm thinking, wow, this must be some like French-Canadian Elton John type guy. <laughs> I don't know. But the songs were cool, and he was addressing everyone in, in French. So at the end of the, the second shot, I really liked the music. I went up and I said, uh, excuse me, I don't speak your language. And he goes, it's okay. I don't speak it either. <laughs> I had no idea he was from Toronto. Um we chatted, and it was actually the only time ever in my career I asked an opening anything like, do you have a CD? I'd love a CD. So he gave me a, a live solo piano CD. I mean, I took it home. I listened to it. A bunch of songs I, I really, really dug. And that was it. So now I'm in London rehearsing with the BBC, and I'm looking at all the artists that are on the list. And hey, there's Gowan. Lawrence Gowan's here. And just as I realized that, I see him walking to me in, in the lobby. We're, we're about to pass each other. And I said, uh, Lawrence, Todd Zuckerman from Styx. Hey, how you doing? He's like, ah, oh, yeah. How you doing, man? What, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm over here playing two songs with David Hasselhoff. I like, oh, okay. Um, but anyway, we, we reconnected at this party. And after dinner, everyone sort of ended up in the great room and different artists got up and would play one or two songs. And everyone was in there. There's this giant staircase and people were sitting up in rows of tens going up this giant staircase, this double banistered friggin' palace. And Lawrence got up there and he did Somebody to Love by Queen and blew oh my. the fucking roof off that place. It was unbelievable. So postscript, when I said goodbye to Dave, we were all hammered. And we were in this 18th century hotel and I was walking up the banister staircase to go to my room because I had to wake up early and fly home. And 
David was complaining that there was no ding dong coming from the grandfather clock and he had his head in the grandfather clock going, there's no dong, there's no dong. (laughs) And I'm like, take care, dude. And that's uh, that's the last I saw him. (laughs) So going back to Lawrence Gowan, he ended up taking over Dennis DeYoung's role as lead singer for Styx. Doesn't he have a legendary story, an incredible Spinal Tap moment? He might have one of the best rock and roll stories of all time. And obviously, Lawrence tells it so much better because it happened to him and he was there. So I'll try to paraphrase the best that I can. So this was in the days when bands would, you know, you'd travel and you'd play a big rock club for like a week. And the club would put you up at the band condo. And that's that's how it was. Same thing with comedians. You'd have the comedian condo or da-da-da. So there's there's the, the, the band condo. And they were somewhere in the maritime provinces, you know, Halifax or uh, New Brunswick or something like that. And his band was called Rheingold at the time. And they were super, super progressive rock, like wore makeup and capes and outfits. And the drummer had a giant drum set with chimes and a gong. And it was very, very elaborate. And, and Lawrence's rig was like, you know, Keith Emerson, you know, surrounded by keyboards set up on a white shag rug. So they're booked into wherever they were in this maritime town and a maritime province. And they're happened to be a circus truck with circus animals. And this guy who, in my mind, had some sort of accent, whether he was French or Italian, and his circus thing was set to open up in a couple days from then. And Lawrence is hanging out with this guy chatting, and, and the guy goes, would you like to use some of the animals for your performance? <laughs> and Lawrence said, absolutely, yes. Because one of their opening songs or a song that was in their set, something called like Welcome to the Circus or the Menagerie of something. There's some animal themed friggin song they had. So Lawrence had in his mind that it's going to be pitch black. There's going to be a pin spot. And the show is going to open up where Lawrence is going to be standing there holding two chains, one holding a lion, one holding a panther, and then with a monkey on his shoulder, like a circus grinder monkeys. And he thought, okay, standard thing, (laughs) right? Of course, as as you'd expect to see in a rock club in 1976 or whenever it was 77, I think it was actually. So behind the stage, behind the drums and the curtain was the truck bay. So even though Lawrence is holding these animals, those animals were tied behind the stage in the truck bay. So they couldn't leap out and lunge into the audience and maul and kill people. Right. But it was going to look like Lawrence was holding these beasts. So I forget the sequence of events. Something happens where, okay, we're going to start the show. We're set up here and the lights go on. All of a sudden, the audience, there's an audible (gasps) because holy shit, there's a there's a panther and a lion and this dude in this getup with a cape <laughs> holding this stuff, right? Like a top hat. And something happens and, and Lawrence realizes, oh, I am allergic to cats. Sneeze. <laughs> he sneezes. The monkey jumps off his shoulder, goes on his keyboard rig, and then starts climbing up the lighting truss and going, (laughs) you know, shaking the lighting truss. And just the mood all of a sudden gets kind of uneasy. (laughs) And 
the line starts to move and kind of <laughs> kind of chuffs a little bit. <laughs> and then the panther moves and steps on a Moog Taurus pedal. And if you don't know what a Moog Taurus pedal is, imagine the low bass pedals of a pipe organ. It's the lowest subsonic frequency <laughs> synthesizer thing that you can imagine that shakes your eyeballs and shakes the room and shakes your gut. So the panther steps on this, and this freaks out the lion who roars. <laughs> and Lauren says, if you've ever stood next to a roaring lion, it's the loudest thing you've ever heard on top of the subsonic base that's happening with this Taurus pedals. Now, this freaks out the panther who projectile shits <laughs> buckets all over Lawrence's keyboard rig and all over his white shag carpet. Now, as this is happening, the monkey's still up on the lighting truss going, <laughs> and the circus guy is reeling in the chain. So the animals are being dragged through shit and through, you know, the, the carpet and the rugs that are coming up and they're trying to move the mic cords so they don't take the mic cords. And these animals are pulled back to stage. And now Lawrence had to go walk behind his keyboards and play the whole rest of that show with panther shit all over his stuff standing in it in the, in the, the white rug <laughs> yeah alan i think but, we have to fact check that story that is almost too good to be true we'll be right back milder than kimchi sharper than mash That was the song Gum in the Gash from Derek Small's little-known solo album, Small's Change, Meditations on Aging. Todd, I've known you since you were an infant, and I had no idea that was you playing drums on that song. I, I did uh, two songs on Derek's record. One was Gum in the Gash, and the other was Faith No More. Sadly, the digital imprint was credited to Greg Bissonette on Gum in the Gash. But that is, in fact, me and doing the drum solo with just me and Steve Vai. That was, a, that was a happy moment when I realized I wasn't credited on that. We're using this episode to set the record straight, Todd. Yes, that, that was me. What? If you've ever wondered who played drums on Gum in the Gash, that's me. Let me ask you something about sticks. You mentioned playing sold-out arenas in Toronto, I think it was. You, t you mentioned playing at casinos. Uh, I remember when I was touring, bands playing county fairs, and had those actually paying pretty well. I mean, you've probably run the gamut. Any stories or, or thoughts on kind of the span of venues that you've experienced with sticks and funny things that brought up? Well, you, you know, things can be surprising. And I, I shared a sentiment with Lawrence once a few years ago where we played somewhere, I want to say it was off the Mississippi River somewhere, like the Illinois-Iowa border. And it was some county fair and it was pretty grim. You know, you showed up and it looked like this racetrack from 1938 and porta-potties and these trailers for dressing rooms. And, you know, let, let's let's face it, it's pretty far from the marble Ritz-Carlton suite, the bathrooms and, and dressing rooms, right? And it was just, you know, it was hot. It's like almost 100 degrees and humid. And I remember you getting there and just kind of thinking, let's get this one over with. And I normally don't feel that way, right? And that's a, 
uh, it, I don't want to say unprofessional, but it, it's it's a bummer. But look, everyone's human. Sometimes you just feel like, this is grim. But we went out there and there was probably eight or 9,000 people and they were beyond enthusiastic and, you know, a young audience and girlfriends up on their boyfriend's shoulders. And it was just bedlam. It was phenomenal. It was a memorable gig. It's one that I'm bringing up out of, you know, playing 2000 plus gigs with these guys. And we get off stage and I say to Lawrence, that was fucking unbelievable. And he goes, I know because I'm asked at every single interview I do, what's your favorite venue to play? Is it like Red Rocks? Is it the Gorge? Is it, you know, the Beacon Theater? What That, that's my favorite venue to play when that happens. So that really is a lesson. You know, don't, you know, prejudge a situation just because you show up and there's porta potties. I never thought like this is beneath us, whatever. This just that's just what this day was. You know, that's, a- that's quite big difference than when uh, you and I and the Falling Willendas played the Wisconsin State Fair, and they came over to us and said, "Hey, can you guys turn down? You're disturbing the pigs." <laughs> and so we had to turn down because you don't want to disturb the pigs. I, th- I think you guys were disturb the pigs at any volume. Let's focus on some of the follies of the falling Willendas. Those, <laughs> those really are a few of my favorite worst gigs. We did have some great gigs. Some of the gigs were just absolutely soul crushing. Just, <laughs> I think all of them were. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's one. And Alex, I'm sure you weren't there for that because you had way too much sense. But we were due to play a club in Milwaukee on the coldest night in recorded history. It was something like 44 below, you know, before wind chill. And it was on the news. Do not leave your house unless it's absolutely essential. Warning, instant death. And I called Alan late afternoon and I said, man, we have to cancel this gig. This is ridiculous. And Alan, the friggin' Boy Scout you were like, no, he made a commitment. He's never going to be there. It's in the paper. They spent money on ads. Oh, my God. So, you know, loading the drums, drive up, unload the drums, set up the gate. We played for like three people. And I was just seething the whole time. Just I wanted to reach over my drums and strangle you right there. And like, let's, oh, yeah, we were in the paper. Now we're going to be in the paper. (laughs) And we still disturbed the pigs. I probably was there. Somehow the pigs still got disturbed. And and I just remember like loading the drums in and driving home and just, you know, finally getting home and thinking that was trauma. Listen, we were the meteorologically challenged band. Remember we played Summerfest, uh, the big oh, festival. Please allow, allow me to tell this one. <laughs> we're, we're playing Summerfest. And there was like, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand people there. And we'd be like, ah, we're going to play for a big house here. And looking over Lake Michigan, you know, here came the alien spaceship in uh, Independence Day. The longest, darkest black cloud <laughs> came. And as the other band finished, and we were moving our gear onto the stage, and I'm setting up the drums. Now it is just pouring, pelting down violently. And where there once was 10,000 people standing, there was nary a soul. 
literally no human beings. I could have blown off a machine gun, just spraying the area and no one would have been harmed because there was nobody left. And it rained and it rained and it rained. And finally, as it started to let up, they were like, sorry, guys, we have a schedule. We have all these other bands. Sorry. You and I had a Spinal Tap moment that had nothing to do with music. My wedding day. Oh, my God. You, you, you really <laughs> want to talk about that one? <laughs> Only a control freak, the level that you are, would have a surprise wedding for your wife who should have murdered you on the spot <laughs> had it gone to plan. <laughs> By the way, that's so, insane. Anyone I've ever brought that story up to, they're like, what? A surprise so let's, let's, wedding? Hey, it's happening. So we had, Todd and I had a little falling out because he joined Sticks and we had a band together. So we hadn't spoken <laughs> probably in a year. And I was having a surprise wedding for my wife. And our mutual friend and bandmate, Scott, was one of the six people in attendance. And Scott is not someone that bothers the details like, oh yeah, it's a surprise. So he told Todd we were getting married the next day. So Todd, I think as an olive branch, called me up and left a message on our phone saying, hey, congratulations, I heard you guys are getting married tomorrow. I mean, I felt horrible, but ask any friend's wife, like, who does that, Alan? <laughs> no, that actually was <laughs> very good because Lois was that? very thrilled. She had 23 hours to prepare for the wedding. But it was a Spinal Tap moment. You got to admit, life has Spinal Tap moments. It certainly does. Todd has said a lot of funny things. Like, we actually recorded our second album, Belittle, at Butch Vig's Smart Studios. He was the youngest guy in the band, a lot less refined back then. And he always had to go to Walgreens and get dinner. That is not <laughs> true at all. We always, we ate, look, we ate at good restaurants. If anyone who knows me, like, I, I am a, a bit of a foodie. But I like to snack at night, and that's why we go there to get, you know, beef jerkies and, 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 and stuff like that. I didn't have dinner at Walgreens. So this is the kind of food he is. He got a Slim Jim or something, and he said, if it ain't beefy, it better be cheesy. Oh that my. was his palate. Let me say two more things. One is I was reading some background on Sticks today, and so many of those songs are the soundtrack of my adolescence. I mean, I thought, oh yeah, I remember that and I'm from middle school. Oh yeah, I remember that from high school and tied to specific summers and stuff like that. So those songs have a real firm place in my memory of growing up, which I appreciate. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's that way for you. I, I know that's not the case with Alan, but I'm glad mm -hmm. that's the case with you. I like Lorelei. <laughs> like your consolation one that you can think of. So Todd, let me ask you one more thing. How can people who want to know more about you or want to interact with your work, how can they find you? You can find me at toddsuckerman.com. You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm pretty accessible. So feel free to uh, drop a note and say hello. Well, what about your real successful teaching DVDs? Those are available also at the web store at toddsuckerman.com, um, as well as my solo CD and uh, signed items, trinkets, little bits, used drumsticks, Pennsylvania Dutch novelties. <laughs> <laughs> All levity aside, people can learn from the master, which is great. Okay, Todd. Great thank interview, you so Todd. Much. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's a great to reconnect with you guys. I hope I provided some... Uh, 
some infotainment, entertainment, jocularity, escape from the, the real world. I think Todd gave us a lot there. What do you think, Alan? Todd gave us an entire Slim Jim pack of 12 <laughs> in that episode. So did our little talk with Todd give you any additional effing perspective on anything? Yeah, it did. As time does give us perspective on things, right? Uh, 20 plus years ago, Todd left our band for Sticks, and we had released our second album and I still had high hopes for the band. Todd moved on and you know, it hurt my feelings because we were like a family, but it was the right decision for him. And I harbor no resentment toward him anymore. And we're as tight as ever. And it's kind of funny how things come full circle like that. Yeah, that's great. Well, the resilience of friendship, like we saw with David and Nigel, right? They brought it back together and Sex Farm went to number five in Japan. Yes. I mean, miracles do happen. So lesson learned. Lesson learned. So thanks to Todd. Thanks to David, Nigel Derrick, and Marty DeBerge for the inspiration. If you haven't topped up on Spinal Tap lately, what are you waiting for? You can buy the movie This is Spinal Tap on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and YouTube, among others, and stream those amazing songs on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite music service. This episode is engineered and mixed by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Thanks to Kevin O'Connell for helping us to get the ball rolling and being a patient coach. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and share your own having perspective by rating and reviewing. Learn more about us on our website at tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. So Alan, what's on tap for our next episode? We're going to have drummer Matt Walker from Morrissey, The Smashing Pumpkins, and Garbage. This is Alan Keller, and on behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to leave you with the song Good Thing. It's from my band The Falling Melendas with Todd Zuckerman on drums. Check us out on iTunes and Spotify. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. See
When strangers